Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm James Finch, this is The Finch Show. I say it, I say it all the time, I'm not going to stop saying it, you have to go check out Blackstar Woodcrafts. My friend Scott, who is the sponsor of this podcast and a good friend of mine, has been for a long time, um, runs his shop out of Michigan, and he's a master. Uh, you know, that's all there is to it. Um, and you probably think to yourself, why do I need a woodcraft? If you don't know the answer to that, that's why you need to check it out. So many cool stuff he does. So much of it I have sitting here on my desk or is something that I have in my house. Um, and we've got this really, really awesome bottle topper for like an open bottle of wine that he made that's absolutely beautiful. I uh, The wedding bands that me and my wife have. He made it's a metal band with a wood inlay on it that's polished and engraved it looks absolutely amazing i have this really really awesome um what's called a skull twist pen that's a fully functioning pen but it, it's 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 a display piece because it is ornate and it is absolutely gorgeous and you can check them out facebook instagram and he has an etsy shop now so you can go on etsy right now look up blackstar woodcrafts and you can see what products he currently has there but if you see something that you kind of like or have an idea for something, by all means, reach out to him. 100% do that. He loves talking to customers. He loves coming up with ideas. He loves going back and forth. And he can give you an idea how long it'll take for him to get it done and kind of the price that you're looking at. It will make an amazing thing as a gift to give somebody. If you've got a birthday coming up, an anniversary, and you want to get something more than just something you can snag off of Amazon, two-day shipping really quick, go to Blackstar Woodcrafts. He will create something beautiful, something unique, and it will be absolutely 100% one of a kind. You cannot go wrong. Do it. And because he is the sponsor of this podcast, you will get 15% off your order by mentioning The Finch Show. Go do it. You will not be let down. And the interesting thing I have to add to that is that Scott and I met a number of years ago um, online playing Gears of War. We're both huge fans of the game. And... What leads me into that is my guest today on the podcast is one of my favorite authors of all time. Her name is Karen Travis. And notable in that sense because she wrote a series of Gears of War novels that tied into the game. And they were so incredibly well done. They gave such a level of richness and depthness to this character, to this world, um, to this culture. Um, and did such a phenomenal job doing it that the makers of the video game Epic asked her to write the script for the third Gears of War game. Which was by far the best game in the series, especially storyline-wise. Um, she's done a number of other things. Um, She's done Star Wars tie-ins. She's done. She wrote a, a trilogy of Halo novels known as the Kilo Five series. Um, she's done a, a lot of her own original work. Her first novel, City of Pearl, came out a number of years ago. Was the beginning of the Wessar series, and she is still working. She's still writing, and her latest book, Galaxy's Edge: The Best of Us, is out now. I am currently reading it. I'm almost through it, and as for typical, it's amazing. She has this really good style of blending this sort of military post-apocalyptic sort of worlds and just weaves these incredible stories um i've been a fan of hers for a really long time i've been a follower for a long time um, i reached out to her asked her if she'd be willing to come on the podcast and she was willing so we sat down and had a conversation over skype and it was probably one of my favorite episodes, no doubt. So I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, here is Karen Travis. 
All right. We are here. Um, Karen Travis is here. First and foremost, I can't thank you enough to take the time out of your schedule to do this. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, we are on, we're on what, a six hour time difference? I think it's still five. Still five? Oh, no, oh, hang okay. on. It depends where, where you are. I am in the Midwest in the United States. Yeah, so it'll be States. six. Yeah, it'll be yeah, six. Central time zone. I was going to hope so. Otherwise, you've been sitting for an hour waiting for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's an awkward time at the end of the of, of the sort of uh, uh, daylight saving uh, when I think there are some there are some places that don't switch over on the same day, and it's like towns, individual towns. So I get very confused, and I I have actually been stuck an hour too late or an hour too early. Well, we get very confused here. Uh, for the most part, Illinois is a state which is where I live. We all jump at the same time. The state right next to us, Indiana, they split in two, where some jump into the daylight savings and some don't. So it you depend upon what part of the state you're in, which is where my wife's family is. It, it gets extremely confusing very quick. So um, I guess the first first of all, I'm I'm a huge fan, have been for a, a very long time. Um, so it's it's a huge honor to have you on the podcast. Um, when did writing begin for you was it something that sort of started as a novelty thing when you were young and then sort of grew into something or what was the story behind that um it was more a desperation thing actually i needed the money (laughs) (laughs) let's put it another way i was old and i needed the money um i've i've written for a living most of my life well actually well most of my working life um i was a journalist uh i worked in public relations um I've written everything from political speeches to features to TV scripts, you know, everything. But it's factual stuff. Um, and I ended up in a PR job uh, working for a branch of, of uh, government. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I lasted a long time there. I will say that uh, it, it's, I ended up doing 11 years. And if that sounds like I mean a prison sentence, uh, <laughs> it was it was awfully close to that. Um, but. I was on. I was. Uh, I was. I was put on a management training course, you know, for the little chief execs course. And I thought, no, this is not me. I don't do this. And this was, you know, there was a fair bit of taxpayer money had gone into training people. And I said to the guy who was running this, I think I should just stop this now because I'm not going to uh, move out, out out of my professional area. I'm not a sort of executive level manager. It's not something I want to do. I don't want to waste taxpayers' money. He said, Well, you're here. Um, we might as well look at what else you can do. And I, I do owe this guy a, a great debt of gratitude. Um, I should have written his name down because it always it eludes me. And this was a long time ago, remember. Uh, um, he, he, he said, let's just sit down and look at the various things that you do and let's maybe look at another career. He said, you know, you might as well use it. It's just as valid to say, I don't think I should continue in this job as it is to say, yes, I wish to rise to the top. So he said, you know, what other things do you do? And he obviously, uh, we discussed the fact I've been a journalist, we have TV and print and all sorts of things. And I said, I, th- I think I'm too old to go back to newspapers. I've just had enough of it. TV, I thought, I think I'd probably end up end up end up doing life because I'd hit someone because it had got very silly. I mean, if you think it, <laughs> that was before I knew what it was going to be like today, of course. But um, so we went through all, all these all these things, and he said, "Have you got any hobbies?" And that's when he met the sort of wall of silence because I don't do hobbies. I do. I'm I make a virtue out of out of out of necessity. You know, I like cooking. I like collecting pens. I like doing you know, anything I've got to do. I try and make 
you know, some sort of fun out of it. And you, you can see this poor man, um, Malcolm McGreevy, that's his name. Sorry, I knew it had come to me. It came to me. Um, he, he was a consultant and he, uh, he worked for Coots, uh, which was, that was a recruitment arm. And I'm sure it's related to the fancy bank, you know, where, where all the truly rich people bank. But he was extremely patient. He went through this. He said, right, you haven't got any hobbies then, right? Uh, okay. And I said, well, I, said, I do occasionally write. I said, but, you know. You know, I do occasionally write fiction. And he just looked at me and said, and you've never thought of doing it for money? And I said, well, no. He said, well, you, you can do a business plan, can't you? And I said, oh, yes. He said, well, he said, I would actually use this to get a business plan together for fiction. And it was like a light had come on. You know, it really was one of those cartoon light bulbs over the top of my head. I thought, good grief, yes, perhaps I can do this. Because lots of the people I'd worked with in TV and newspapers had gone on to really glittering fiction careers. And it just never crossed my mind that, you know, there was money to be made in this. But, of course, like any business, it can be broken down. And I came up with a business plan. I uh, did my research. I decided I was going to write science fiction because uh, there's a lot more latitude in that. I knew I, I'd worked out from talking to, to readers that they wanted series rather than one-offs and that they, they seemed to attach to characters rather than to um, the ideas. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, journalists can do that quite well. I think that's one of the things is we've got a great mental database of people, uh, you know, and after about 20-odd years, you've, you know, you've, you've got a fair old template for most most of the, of the human condition. So um, I wrote a few shorts. I won a place at Clarion when it was held at Michigan State University. Uh, I spent six weeks there. It's a sort of boot camp for writers. It either makes you or breaks you or makes you realise that perhaps this really isn't how you want to spend the rest of your life. Um, made made quite a few contacts there. And um, Clarion was in 2000 and I had quit the day job by, let's see, end of 2004. I mean, I've been writing all during that time. I'd done my first series during that time. And then I, I was able to go full time. But... I sort of hesitate to tell people this because everyone thinks that you've got to have this inbuilt desire from the uh, from the cradle to want to be a novelist, that you've got novels fighting to get out of you. And I just didn't. I just thought that's, a, that's something I, I can do. It's turned out to be relatively easy for me. I wouldn't miss it if I couldn't do it anymore. Um, I'd probably... <laughs> I think I'd probably miss cooking more if I couldn't cook anymore. <laughs> and, of course, people who've sweated blood over uh, not having a sort of novelist career think this is awfully ungrateful. But, you know, I've, I've, I've made myself. I come from a very um, poor area, a uh, working-class family, um, and I, I was I was fortunate in, enough to be born at a time when uh, we had uh, what was called the 11 plus, which was an academic test uh, that decided who who went to a grammar school and who didn't. And that was the making of many work, working class kids who wouldn't have had a chance if their schools had been based on catchment areas where they live. Um, unfortunately, grammar schools have been uh, basically phased out although they're trying to bring them back and then there's some sort of belief that uh they are bad for the working class i think it's only the middle class who say that <laughs> um and it's very easy to say that when you're in an affluent area with a nice school mm -hmm. um and of course it's much you will never get out unless you have a good school i say i mean get out i mean i don't wish to turn my back on what i was but there are jobs that you can only do if you've been through a certain system and 
I mean, that I suppose those were so those were some of the lucky breaks in my life that uh, I was born at a time when I could do the eleven plus, and I did get a grammar school place. And I often met the right people at the right time, which was when I went to Clarion. Um, I made a point of talking to uh, the ed- editors who, who who came, who were sort of movers and shakers, and I already had. Uh, a contact before I left the course who said, when you do your first novel, call me, you know, and that, I mean, that's, that's a sort of journalist skill, you know, it's, it's sort of work, working the room. I think mean, it makes me sound awfully sleazy. It's, you know, it's about survival. Um, you know, a girl's got to, got to eat. And uh, so I don't have any sort of uh, family money or, you know, or any um, inheritance to come and it had to be me earn, earning it, which is, I suppose what I've done really. Now, um, I, I, it was interesting. You said that uh, you were sort of drawn to science fiction because it gave you a lot more latitude. Prior to um, deciding to sit down and begin to write and take that path, did you have any kind of background in science fiction in terms of uh, works that you'd read that you really enjoyed or influences, or was it just something that you just went into? Um, I think it's fairly well well, well known amongst people who, who, who know who I am, which is probably only about 2% of the population, that I don't read. I hate reading fiction. Uh, I've got all sorts of reasons for, hate, for, for hating reading fiction. And even if I liked it, I probably wouldn't read it now because it's partly, uh, you know, the, the, there's, there's the ideas contamination thing. Uh, you don't know what's sinking in from someone else. And I know a lot of writers who actually don't read when they're writing for that reason. But, mm. you know, you never know how long ago that has percolated into your consciousness. And, I mean, here here is a classic example. Actually, um, I I'd certainly watched a lot of science fiction. Uh, I I've obviously remember um, two thousand and one coming out and being blown blown away by that. And I um, I was you know, trying to think how old I was then. Well, young teens. Let's just say <laughs> I'd have to sit down and do the maths. Um, <laughs> but I can I have a vague I had a vague memory of a TV program when I was about five or six um, called A A for Andromeda. It was on the BBC. I I think it was on the BBC. It was written by uh, the astronomer Fred Hoyle. And the only thing I could remember as an adult was asking my mother, who had left school at 14 and had no fancy um, schooling or anything like that, I remember asking her, what's Andromeda? And she said to me, they're stars that are so far away, the light takes millions of years for us to see it. And I remember being absolutely gobsmacked by that. I mean, as a kid, that was just a sort of concept. I mean, it's still quite a tough concept to deal with now, but just thinking, wow, that's quite something. But I remember very little about the series. And it, like like many of these very old um, series from black and white TV days, uh, the recordings weren't kept and no one had heard of it years later. And then a friend of mine who's into uh, rescuing archive TV footage said, you're going to love this, he said. Someone's found a lot of A for Andromeda. They're going to do a DVD of it. And I bought the DVD. I mean, not all of it is the is the um, is the actual TV program. They they'd lost so so much of the original footage that they had to uh, put in production stills, but the audio track was there. And I'm listening to this, and it was the most bizarre experience because all the things that I had later gone on to do with science fiction, which is about the role of government and and the military. Uh, 
yeah, first contact, the whole sort of tone of it, I thought, that's what shaped me. And I don't remember it. And I was five years old and this was an adult series. So I think the lesson is if you stick your kids in front of the TV set and think they're too young to understand something, and if they don't understand it at the time, it won't shape them, wrong. Uh-huh. This just came straight out of, you know, uh, I mean, we're talking about hmm, how, how many years have elapsed? Probably about 40 odd, 50 years, something like that. You know? <laughs> and um, it was it was it was a real shock to me. I had no recollection of the actual series other than the title sequence. But whatever had been said and the general vibe had had left a mark on me. Which is interesting. Uh-huh. You um one of the things that I love about uh, your work is you you seem to have this really good knack for sort of narrowing down this science fiction um, slash military vibe. Um, is there a specific place that comes from, or is that just what the kind of stories you like to tell? Uh, I think it was a, a case of writing writing what I knew. I mean, I don't I don't I don't think that's a sort of iron rule because I've had to learn about a lot of things in context to be able to write, you know, I mean um what I often say to people is once you start writing, if you're writing outside yourself, I mean, I know some people are writing what is within them. Writing for me is a way of looking at the world and exploring it. I want to know what it's like to be that person. I want to know what that person thinks. It's very much a reporting thing for me. Um, I mean, there's nothing more boring for me than writing what's in your own head. I know what's in my own head. I live with it all, all day. I want to write what's in someone else's head, which is why I approach it the way I do. But I've been a defence correspondent. Um, I mean, grew up in a naval-based town. Um, yeah, done a little bit of uh, a very, very small bit of uh, reserve service, very small. Uh, most of my family had um, served at some time or had worked in the dockyard. So I sort of come from um, a sort of quasi-military environment. And um, those were the things I knew. So when I started on the first series, which was uh, which was City of... Uh, the first book was City of Pearl for the Westar series. It was always planned as six books. I, I, I sort of started... Sorry, perhaps it makes more sense if I go back and say how I come up with, with what's going to happen in a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not... I never see a plot or a story. I see I see the environment. Uh, you say, right, okay, be it a space station or a ship at sea or whatever. Uh, what is the setting? And then who would be there? What are the sort of people who would naturally be in these situations? Then I create the characters. Then I put them together and see how they interact. Now, it's quite difficult to tell people that because... Uh, many people have turned around to me and said that isn't that can't possibly happen. Yes, it does. It absolutely does, and it's taken me decades to work out how how I actually think that way. But that's how I work. It is exactly like an interactive game or a computer model. So I knew um, enough about military things to be able to have uh, sort of convincing Royal Marines in the story. I knew how the police worked because I'd worked for the police. Um, Aliens, well, you know, a general interest in, uh, in in biology and zoology. So I love building aliens. That's fun. That's a challenge, you know, sort of biological determinism there, you know, what they are, uh, the sort of societies they build based on the sort of animal they are. Um, still enjoy doing that very much. And and that was it. And these things run. And um, 
because I make a point of seeing the world through the character's eyes, I don't know how the story's going to end. I frequently am caught out by the characters. And the number of times uh, I've, that when I'm in their head for that particular point of view scene, they do something and I, I sort of jerk out of it for a second and, and think, why did you do that? That's awful. <laughs> no, that's what you're doing. No, you are the character. I'm going to get back into this. And um, I was I, I was at a... I, I was at a con once and I ran into an actor and we were discussing this. And he said, oh, that's method acting, darling, method acting. That's what we do. <laughs> and he's right. You know, you could, you become someone else. Mm-hmm. And again, you will get people who say, this isn't, you know, this can't possibly happen. That's not the way the brain works. But it is. Mm-hmm. And one of the Canadian universities, and I've forgotten which one, actually did an MRI scan of actors' brains while they were reading a part I was trying to imagine how they would do that, given what an MRI scanner is like. But somehow they managed to scan actors' brains while they were acting. And they definitely saw the activity in the brain change from the area uh, that's about self uh, to the the actual suppression of self. That They literally were suppressing themselves and becoming someone else. Wow. So I've made a note of that. I always carry it around on my phone so that I can I can end yeah. arguments going, it's true, look, look, look at my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. That's God, that's I've um I've always I've been fascinated by that as I go on a, a off on a bit of a side tangent here, is that um I was listening to a podcast one time that had a neurologist was on who studies brain activity and he was talking about um what frequently now gets referred to as free flow state. Um, where basically brain waves change in the brain based upon what somebody's doing. And we see this a lot. Um, what made me think about this is we see this a lot in athletics and, and sports. Um, when you have a player who's particularly gifted at what it is they do, and they just sort of have this way of sort of going into this free flow state where they're sort of like almost reacting subconsciously. And those are the, the people who end up legends who do amazing things under incredible pressure. Um, so I wonder if there's a relation to that because that's that's really really fascinating. I'd never heard that before. Well, one of the ways I tested it by accident and wished I hadn't uh, was um, the the last few years I I did an experiment which failed miserably, but it it was worth doing because it taught me what did work. Excuse me. <coughs> it. Sorry, it taught me what did work. Uh, I, I've i written an awful lot of books. Uh, everything was chuntering along. I've, I had a bit of a break. Well, break. I wouldn't say it's... Not, sorry, I'll start that again. I didn't so much have a break as I found it very difficult to be happy with what I was writing, so no books were coming out of me. And partly that was what was going on, family circumstances, bereavement, ageing parents, that sort of thing. It was got a bit heavy. Um but partly because I got, I think, a bit anxious about not being creative enough. Um, I like anime. I watch an enormous amount. It's pretty well 99% of my viewing. <laughs> and I'm always stunned by Japanese storytellers' ability to, one, take risk with characters, which I, I totally agree with. If, if you know a character is not at risk, there's no drama. Mm-hmm. But also, they're completely off the wall, out of the blue, com- nutty stuff. And I just watch open mouth sometimes and think, why can't I think of that? Why can't I do that? 
And I blogged about it a few times. If you go to my blogs on Goodreads and on my uh, web website, you will see me mentioning this, saying yeah, I really admire them so much. I wish I, I wish I had that sort of creative imagination, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I, I, I got to the stage where I thought, well, perhaps I really need to be more creative now. And I was trying to work out how they did it. And when you start looking inside your own thoughts, it can get very, very convoluted. But I started to see that I had what I thought was the inner sensor. I'll call it the inner sensor. Uh, that when I started to have a crazy idea, a random idea, that the wall would come down. Um, and I thought, that's it. I've got to break the inner sensor. I've just got to ignore that and forge on through. I've just got to do the whole crazy thing. And it took me a couple of years, but I was starting to do it. And I was terribly, terribly pleased with myself. I thought, look at that. You've defeated your programming. You know, instead of ignoring those crazy ideas or not as much ignoring them as they didn't even fully form. It was almost like a flash of light and then they were gone. And I didn't realise the damage I'd done to my to my storytelling technique. Uh, I've just finally finished the manuscript for Mother Death, which is the second book in my Nomad series, which I'm uh, doing as part of the um, of uh, the Galaxy's Edge thing with uh, Jason Anspat and uh, Nick Cole, uh, who are great friends, and uh, um, they said, you know, come and write with us, or or, or you know. Do, do some stuff for a set, set here and, you know, do whatever you like. So I went off on a complete tangent and did an enormously distant prequel. prequel. And this is a massive book. It's well over 200,000 um, words. And I wrote it three times because I was so unhappy with it and I couldn't work out what was wrong. And... I just struggled with it. I thought, there's something really, really wrong with this book. Everything made sense. The plot made sense. There was a lot of action. And then I realised that the characters didn't sound right. They didn't sound like them. And it took me absolutely months of tearing this apart with a bit of input from, from the editor to realise it was the... It wasn't the inner censor I'd been ignoring. It was the characters... Where, uh, because I was, because I'd come from a place where I followed the characters so closely, that hesitation that made that crazy thought go away was the character saying, I wouldn't do that. What the hell are you doing? Stop it. Mm. And I, of course, wasn't listening to that. And I just did this crazy idea, which, as I say, made sense on paper, but it was, I knew it wasn't my writing. It wasn't what I should have been doing. So I've had to spend months getting out of that and listening to the characters again and going through what I used to do, which is just trying to shut out everything else except what the character would feel. And I finally got back to it, but it, it, it has cost me two years' work. And I think the, the answer is, one, if it ain't broke, do not even think of fixing it. And secondly, I see so many courses offered about unleash your creativity, be more creative. Sometimes you don't need that. You need to stick with what you're good at. Because it wasn't creative, it was just random. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, yeah. if, um, if you're, I mean, the, the, my stock in trade is characterization. I really build it on the characters. You are in their heads, you live their lives. Once you step outside that, I haven't got a story to tell. I, you know, there is nothing in me that is, that, 
that is a storyteller driven by me. It is observing other people and the book is a lens for the outside world for me. So I learned a very hard lesson there. Um, it's, as I say, it's cost me time and money, but at least I learned it before I went too far down the rabbit hole. It's, um, so I now ad admire the anime from a distance and think <laughs> they can do it because they've got a whole different culture and a whole different story convention. But I've set up my stall as this and I will stick to it. Mm -hmm. That's that is really, really interesting, man. Um, I hate to completely switch gears here, but uh, I, I have to ask you one of the way I'd read uh, if we go back in time, I had read some of your uh, previous works. I'd read City of Pearl. Um, some of the other tie-ins that you did, the one that like 100% for sure put you towards the top of my list, uh, was the Gears of War series. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a huge fan of the video games. Um, the, the interesting thing about that is that you sort of have this, like, you know, this new video game that comes out and it, you, you have these amazing looking landscapes and gameplay and these characters, but throughout the course of a game, you don't really get the opportunity for um, a whole lot of character development. They're really getting to know. You feel like you're just barely even looking at the iceberg, let alone hitting the tip of it. So to have these series of books that come out that got really immersive and really got into this uh, this culture, this government, the, uh, and especially these characters and giving them such a rich background. They went from being these 2D characters on a screen to um, feeling like real people with thoughts and emotions and backstories. Uh, to go back to that, where how does that sort of process begin with, with something like Gears of War um, and you? How does that relationship begin? Well, Gears was... A very different situation, uh, utterly random. Another one of these things, right place, right time, uh, try and make the right decision about it. Um, I I don't, I sort of stay away from, or certainly when I, when I was doing times, I stayed away from popular culture because if I knew too much about something, I couldn't write it. Yeah. I've either got to consume it or I've got to produce it. That's just the way my brain works. And if I know too much, then it cuts out that exploratory reporting process for me. And because I still approach every story as if I'm a journalist, you know, who's involved, ask them the questions, listen to what they say. Um, I just got a random call one day from a publisher who I did not have a good relationship with uh, because of uh, getting paid. <laughs> and they said, oh, would, would you would you help us out with something? We'd, we'd be really someone urgently to do this. And I said, what is it? And they said, oh, well, it's a game called Gears of War. And I said, Okay, let me have a think about it. And of course, uh, at the time, I had a television. I don't have a TV, and I haven't had a TV for years. I would have the TV on in the background to give me the newsroom noise effect, you know, sort of like white, white noise. And I, I did a search for Gears of War, and the first thing that came up was the trailer. And I realised this was a trailer I'd seen in the last few weeks that had made me stop and look and... It was it was the Mad World trailer. Mm -hmm. Do you remember yes. that? I remember looking up at the at the TV and seeing Marcus Phoenix as I as I now know he was called, and thinking, "Wow, that's an interesting world. What the hell is that about?" And then I promptly forgot about it. But when I saw what Gears of War was, I thought, Do "You know, that's interesting." And I was quite pally with the uh, with the Penny Arcade guys at the time, and I got in touch with uh, uh, with Jerry and said, 
no names, no pack drill. If I said Gears of War to you, what would you say? And he said, it's it's Travis Town. He said, do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I get, even, even though I loathed the publisher with a passion, I went back and said, I will do it. And the first conversation that I had with uh, Epic, we just hit it off. It was it was like it was meant to be. And they, for various reasons, I won't go into because it's a bit confidential about why they why the book was urgent. Um, they said, "What do you want to do?" Uh, you know, I said, "Look, just tell. If you're all already committed to something on Asfo Fields, what was the battle?" They said, "Well, we don't know. You're going to tell us." All we know is that Carlos got killed. Mm -hmm. And I said, really? I can just, they said, yeah, please just fill that gap in. And that really set the tone for the whole thing is that uh, they were, they were about well, the only franchise I'd ever come across. And I worked with a few and there's quite a few people don't know I've done work for. They, they, they had resisted the urge to fill in all the gaps because it's terribly tempting and, you know, it doesn't matter how big franchises are, they will sit down, they'll fill in all the gaps without any organic story growth. And then they'll get to a point and think, oh, well, we've already got that. We have to wreck on that. They just did what they needed to to keep the game running, and they didn't overfill it. So I had a com well, very nearly a blank sheet. I mean, we knew roughly where the game was going, very roughly, at, at the end. Um, but getting there was an absolutely fascinating process. And... You know, they were they were happy to be shaped partly by that. And you know, as you, you know, as you know, I ended up doing the comics, and I was lead writer on the third game. But it was like a hive mind in in the end. It was it was the most extraordinary thing. And I remember thinking at the time, this is never going to happen to me again. This is like a conjunction of planets once in a thousand years. They were the right people. The game was fantastic. The art was fantastic. And all I needed was the art. I I could literally look at that artwork and know everything about the culture because they'd put it in there and it was there to be seen. I mean, normally I can look at a picture and I can, you know, if someone gives me a picture, I can normally come up with a story that will fit the picture. They'd actually told the story in the pictures and there was so much in there for me. And they had, they, they, they'd had a very light touch with some of the characters like um, uh, Hoffman. Hoffman hadn't, had not been intended to be a sort of deep character, so there's very little of his characterization done. Um, ditto Anya and those. So I had all these options, certainly from the novel's point of view. Uh, there, there are certain certain mechanics you need within a novel uh, that don't matter to a game, but there were these, what I call the B-list characters, who were really, really useful for that. And the only rule I had from them was because they could see how I wrote... Uh, sort of very tight third-person POVs. They said, you can't write from Marcus's perspective. You can't do that. We want to keep him mysterious. And I thought, Mike, how am I going to do that? Because that's my stock in trade, you see. That's <laughs> basically getting characters' heads. But it worked fantastically well because it forced me to look at him through everyone else's eyes. And you still end up drawing a really accurate picture of, of this guy. And you get to know him and you know what he'll do and what he won't do. And... Going back to the whole thing about the images, when I wrote the first book, uh, which was, you know, pretty, I'm pretty sure it was the first one, perhaps it was the second one, there is a scene in Prescott's office, and I had a mental picture of Prescott's office, although I hadn't seen it from any concept art. They hadn't actually done it then, I don't think. 
and there was a carpet on the floor and I'm not sure I left the carpet bit in but it was it, it was basically a sort of uh, Chinese or Indian type pattern carpet and when I was actually at Epic uh, and we were working towards the third game I saw some of the concept art of Prescott's office and my reaction was the carpet's wrong it's a different carpet and then suddenly realised I looked at the artist and he looked at me and we had both seen the same thing we hadn't ever briefed each other we hadn't exchanged information but we'd seen the same room except for the carpet now that tells you how well conceived that world was and how everyone even without exchanging the information knew what the expectations were um what it should look like the vibe everything and i was trying to describe this to someone because it is odd and i don't know how how that works from a cognitive point of view and imagine some uh, some uh, someone who's who, who knows more about the brain could possibly tell me but somehow we'd all seen the same world even if we hadn't discussed it and it was like it was like we'd lived there and had forgotten it and we're gradually remembering what it was like to be there and we all because we'd all been there, so to speak, we all knew what it looked like and what it sounded like and what would happen. And it was just the weirdest thing ever. And absolutely, totally uh, thrilling and enjoyable because it was such a high quality product and the people were so dedicated. And yeah, I think it's one of these things I say, I'm genuinely proud that I worked on it and we had such a fantastic team and they let me do so much. They let me, you know, they let me do story consultancy. I mean, you know, I mean to actually, to actually uh, be able to say, oh, I really, I'd really like to write comics. All right, all right, you you can do the gears comics, and it, you know, that doesn't get handy to everyone. So I'm really, really grateful for the for the opportunities I got, and you know, um, spending time in the studio for the sound recordings and, and you know, everything. They let me have a let me have a crack at everything, and that I I, I think we got a better story out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, the experiment, we say the experiment, the, the sort of plan was that the story that emerged in the comics and in the novels wouldn't, was supposed to be uh, continuous with the game. It wouldn't be repeated. It was almost like you had to come out of the game, read the novel, read the comic, and you know, generally put it together like that. So some people didn't, some people read the books and didn't play, play the game. People who played the game hadn't read the comics, you know, so they didn't necessarily get the whole picture. So I'm not sure whether whether I would do that again. But uh, um, it all it all fitted together, and and everyone's story fed into ev- everyone else's. And I think that's that's a rare thing, as normally with with times the writer is uh, to use Scott Adams' um, line from Dilbert, uh, the ninth most important resource after carbon paper. You know, I mean, you really are. You, you you really are not even the toilet cleaner as far as most franchises are, are, are concerned. They don't care what damage they do as they carry on. But that's fair enough. I mean, they've got a primary product, be it a game, a movie, a TV series or, or whatever, and they're not really in, interested in the novel side. But mm. Epic saw it all as being part of the same story, part of the same product, and they took enormous pride in these things. So, yeah, um, it was one of these things I knew I'd better savour because it wasn't going to happen a second time. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say it. Um, the impact that it had was was pretty incredible. I'm a, I'm a, as I said, I'm a huge Gears of War fan, and I've got a group of friends that I I play with online, and we have for a number of years. 
<clears throat> because it's online, of course, we're spread all across the country. Um, uh, my friend Scott in Michigan, my friend Vicky in Tennessee, and all, we had a lot of fun as we would sit sometimes till way late playing Gears of War. And um, all of us had had read your novels. And so it added this whole other level of fun to it, you know, as an absolute bloodshed and mayhem is going on, ordnance is going off everywhere, and, you know, people are yelling back and forth, ah, there's a corpse around the right, look out, look out. At the same time, we're exchanging stories from the books. Hey, do you remember that time that Sam was laughing at Baird because he was trying to work on a broken toilet to, you know, <laughs> to design something? And it, it added this whole note because, you know, it's, it's as far as we're concerned, it, it's 100% canon. So that is the backstory of these characters that we're playing as. And we we could sort of go back and forth and reminisce over different aspects of um, these characters and what they've been through. Like I said, I added a whole nother level of, of fun to it. Um, I, I remember when, um, and in just a second, I got to ask you about Gears of War 3. But as a testament, uh, I'll never forget when Gears of War 3 came out. And there were a group of me and my friends who were so excited for it. That when it came out, we got it. The day it came out, we were all here. We were all playing through the campaign multiplayer. You know, beer is flowing. We've got snacks. We're laughing and joking. And then you get to the scene with Dom at the gas station. And when you've got a room of rowdy 20-some-year-olds, and then all of a sudden you can hear a pin drop. You know, because the story, that element, that part of it where Dom sacrifices himself to save the squad and let them get out of there. I think it was one of the very few times in my life that I like got legitimately emotional over a video game because the story and everything and knowing all the backstory between Marcus and Dom um, and everything that had happened there. It was it was it was really, really incredible. To be in that, looking back on it, it still feels a little bit surreal. I still get kind of goosebumps thinking about it. Um, but that was a testament to just how well done the story was for that video game. Um, do you remember um, how you felt about the scene in Gears 2 when basically Dom yes. shoots her in the face? I mean, that really yes. shocked me. Oh, man. I mean, that's powerful. That was mm -hmm. a powerful scene. I think there were lots of those. I mean, um, you know, obviously there have been previous writers before me, and they and they did equally sterling jobs. Because that, yeah, you know, that, that was it. Was just such. It was a game prepared to take risks mm -hmm. to actually stick with the emotional truth, so to speak, because it actually makes a better gameplay. But I remember watching that and thinking, "Oh my god, that's that's." <laughs> but mm -hmm. it was clever. Um, yeah. Uh, the the bit that always gets me is another thing I didn't write, which is which is uh, um, Prescott's speech. I've actually I shouldn't say this, but um, I've actually got Prescott's speech as it was done by other actors because various people tried out for different voices, and I've got one version of it because um, I've still got all the all all the stuff we worked with for the third game. I, I've got someone reading Prescott's speech. Um, uh, about going out to fight the grubs on, on, on their own turf. And it is one of the best political speeches I have ever... I mean, and I've actually written political speeches, so I know what the real things should be like. I would have voted for Prescott. It was so <laughs> well written. It was absolutely fantastic. And that, and you know, and uh, uh, Josh and uh, Rod had written that, as, as far as I know. I might have misremembered that. And I said, 
you could do this for politicians, you know. That's a real political speech. And that was a level of – but I've still got it on my, uh, on my uh, uh, audio in the car. And sometimes it'll, it'll, it'll uh, come up. It'll jump to that track. And I have to listen to it. And I just – I know what you mean about your hair standing up on the back of your neck because it, it makes you want to go out and kill grubs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but also it makes you – Prescott, I'll vote for him. He's got my vote. It's really clever stuff. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, Dom, I'm so, sorry, the reason there's that long, there is, I'm, I'm not sure what I should say, and I'm not sure what I remember, this is the worst thing, and memory is not a reliable thing, but I can remember we had various debates about, you can't kill that person because that's got to go there, and, you know, people got killed, but, but then we changed our minds about things, but we, Dom's got to go, because that's what he'd do, it wasn't there for shock value, it was what he'd do. He's got nothing left except to save his mates. Mm -hmm. You know, his wife's gone, his kids have gone, his, everyone he's known and loved except his mates. Mm -hmm. And if he can save them, then it's worth it for him. And I think that was that was what that was what we settled on. And we had a little vote, and <laughs> so I voted to kill Dom. I said, yes, we have got to. It has got to be Dom because that's the sort of thing he'd do. Right. Yeah. Well, and that was sort of his his story arc from the very first game is that ever since Emergence Day, he had been basically fueled by this idea that his wife was still alive somewhere. Mm. And as he found out, she was, but she wasn't, yeah. you know. And then once that was gone, it was sort of like, you know, all that all, you're absolutely right. All that all that was left was the squad. All that was yeah, left was fighting it. with and protecting. And so, yeah. when there's an opportunity where he could sacrifice himself to save them, or they yeah. could all potentially be dead anyway, of course he was going to do it. Yes, and when you look back on his life, I mean, terribly tragic life, really. When you you know when you think about lose, losing his brother like that, and I mean the only things we. It's funny. It's like there was no other story that was what had happened and there was no way I could deviate from it. But all I had was Carlos died and that was all I knew. Mm -hmm. But instantly that story was there. And I didn't even have to think about it too hard. I mean, I sort of tried to, as, as, as for fields, I'd, I'd, I'd looked at various um, uh, campaigns of world war two and the various commando raids. And they were the actual reality of the, um, uh, Oh, I can't remember which one it was. Was it Zabruga or was it? Uh, uh, I've totally forgotten now, but it was one of these incredibly daring commando raids of World War II. And when I went through it, I thought that's never going to work in fiction because it's unbelievable what those guys did in in, in the real world. Mm -hmm. So it's a very watered down version. However much mayhem there was, that's a watered down version of what real men did during World War II. And I think you know, never lose sight of that. But it was like it had happened, and all I was doing was reporting it. So, you know, you, you sort of get to a state and you think, poor old Dom, he's lost everyone he cares about. And, you know, and it started young. He was 17. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I mean, you, you have to live that tragedy for them. You, you have to treat it as if it's real. Because if you don't treat it as if it's real, it, it becomes very dilute on the page or, or on the screen. You have to get in, into it. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think a lot of people... Um... I think a lot of readers and even fans, they sort of like um, have this subconscious, I guess the best way to put it is bullshit meter. You know what I mean? Like you can tell when something doesn't feel genuine. You can tell when a character or a story doesn't feel genuine or it's being true to itself, um, which 
is something that in Gears of War, that meter never went off. You know, it always felt like it was, it was, um, you know, just like you said with the, if all characters are safe, there's nothing to be scared of. There's no, you know, you you don't worry about it. Inevitably, there's no anxiety to it. There's no hanging on the edge of your seat. Yeah. And I think every, everyone, everyone who worked on it had the same attitude to it, that, that it was real and it mattered, that it mattered to tell the truth about it, which was, yeah, I sort of run out of words, words to describe it really, but it was, as I say, it was like everyone knew exactly what they were doing. And it just goes to show the sort of power of having a sort of united work workforce who were all going for the same goal, that mm-hmm. they wanted this to be the best game that possible because, and the most honest game and to actually do the right thing by the characters because I think there have been there have been a lot of uh, um, criticism from certain quarters in the early days about oh well they're just grunt, grunting uh, um, men in stupid armor and they didn't Epic didn't sit like that at all and neither did I when I looked at it I thought this was this was smart this was intelligent that these were three-dimensional people um, the, the games had had a depth to them mm-hmm. Um you know, and that was because the people who worked on that cared, really, really cared. I'm not saying that other people don't care about their games, but um, the the sort of level of commitment and, and sort of passion that I saw, I mean, I'm not surprised people who work in games burn themselves out. You know, the hours people put in is just horrific. But you want to be there. You You want to do it. The... Interesting thing. This is fascinating. I don't know if this always fascinated me, so I had to ask you more about it. I don't know if you remember. You probably certainly don't know that it was me, but a few years ago, um, Gears of War 4 had come out, and I had actually asked you on Twitter if you had any interest in where that story had gone, because you had done so much work on that universe, and that now that other people were on the sort of on the reins, if you had any interest in where that story was going and your answer um, was no, that that was just kind of a, a thing that was in the past. And I think it even prompted you to do a blog post over it. Um, but I definitely wanted to ask you about that more in depth, if you recall that at all. Um, but that, yeah, that's my, that's my normal way of operating out of sight, out of mind. Uh, I don't know if it's a journalist habit or it's a habit that I had that, that fitted journalism. Once I once I finished work on something, I really did feel I'd finished Gears. Mm-hmm. Um, there was that was a real logical end, end to that story. There was a real pause there. It wasn't that anything was left unfinished really from that particular story arc. And once I've done that, then it's gone. I have not you know, I mean, I keep saying I'm I'm going to do the prequels to the Wessar series or continue that. And I'm thinking, you know, even though that's my own creation. I know I'll have to read it again to even work out what was going on. It is it basically it's just shut away. It's in another part of my brain. I have difficulty recalling it. Everything I leave, the day I stop working on it, it's gone. I mean there are there are franchises where uh people have come back to me years later and said, Can you come back? And I say, No, I can't. I can't. And it's not like um it's it's just, it is knowing that it's over. It was it was of that time. It was it was it was what I could do at the at the, at the time. It was the people you were with. It's a whole raft of things. But I don't think you can ever go back. I never go back to a job, and I stopped thinking about it. 
um, people find this hard to believe because I think particularly if someone is a fan of something, right, that's a real focus for them. That is a real focus. And I understand that because there are a couple of uh, series, TV series I've been following that have ended abruptly and it's been like, you know, what the hell happened? I want someone to finish that because mm-hmm. you've got that sense of needing to know what happened to the characters. But I think writing it, you know, I, I sort of try and cut the writers some slack and think they're doing what you're doing. It's over. They've moved on. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, it, it was cut short, budget, you know, actors strike, whatever. They've moved on. Forget it. <laughs> um, but no, I don't think of these things ever again. And I, th- I think that's I think that's healthy. If you spend all your time looking over your shoulder, what you used to do and what other people are doing with it. I just think no, no good can come of that. Yeah, that's true. So I just don't. That ends up, um, and I think part of the reason why I found that answer so interesting is that's a very, the difference between the way the writer looks at it, as you said, versus the way the fan looks at it. You know, where the fan just ends up like obsessed with it, and they just want they just want to keep that that train going for as long as humanly possible. You know, just to try and suck every last sap of that story out of it. Whereas a writer, it's you know, did this, now I'm working on this project and now I'm working on this project and now I'm working on this project. So um, I was, I guess I would say shocked by the answer, but at the same time fascinated and the more um, you'd explain it, the more it 100% made total, total sense. Not every writer works like that though, because I know writers who do keep an eye on the properties they used to work on. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that's asking for trouble. You know, you're, you're not going to like what other, someone else has done with it. Yeah, because I mean, it's, especially if they foul it up, <laughs> then you're going to get. I've seen people get really angry, like you know, we we did all that work and now look what they've done, and there's nothing you can do about it because you have no ownership there. Right. And I mean, it's like remakes of movies that you've loved. Mm-hmm. They're never, you know, it's there's that awful feeling of having been betrayed, <laughs> even though you've got no right to feel that nobody made you watch the movie, uh, whatever. Right. But it's that feeling of because you put so much time and effort into it that either from the, uh, from, the, from, the, from the consumer end or from the producing end that you just feel really robbed. And I just think, you know what, you walk away. Mm-hmm. You walk away. And I'm not someone who walks away from things. This is, this is what surprises me. I'm, um, I've, I'm known for not only flogging dead horses but, you know, telling a pile of bones that it's got to get a grip and stand up. I don't know when to quit. And I've done myself some real harm by not walking away from bad situations because mm-hmm. I, I can fix this. You know, I was, that's how I was brought up. You will stick at that. You will finish the job you set out to do. You will, you will not back down. And that's the whole thing. And there does come a point where you have to know when it's time to walk away. So I'm surprised that I do it with, with jobs uh, in terms of, well, I'm just trying to think of the other jobs because obviously I've not, you know, I spent quite a few decades doing other jobs. I suppose when I look back on previous places where I've worked and when I've watched them foul up, there is an odd feeling of, you know, it, they didn't learn anything or they could have done it differently. And I've still in touch with someone from a, from a previous t- day job and we occasionally swap um, horror stories about what the, what the organization's doing now. And it's like, they never listened to us, did they? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's but it leaves you feeling quite marked. But I suppose the things I pull out of my previous jobs uh, are things that help me in the current one. I mean, those those miserable years in, in sort of a public sector PR, should I call it that? That's been a goldmine. 
that's been an absolute goldmine to understanding the way certain people think, certain types of people think, uh, politics. I mean, Prescott. Prescott was my... I really love writing Prescott because he was every politician. <laughs> and the language, he his carefully chosen language. And he was a real challenge to write. And I really enjoyed the craft of that. It's a shame that nobody loved Prescott because I really enjoyed <laughs> writing him. He was a real... You know, there was there was some real deep craft going on there. <laughs> <laughs> he was such a jerk, you know. <laughs> you see, that's what I thought to start with, but then as I started looking at his choices, I thought, what else can he do? Right. What else could he do? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, well, you always view things differently when you've got the weight of a civilization on your shoulders. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, so, uh, a couple other. Just real quick ones I had before we close this thing down. When, um, a- as a writer, what is your general style in terms of like, are you typically writing on a laptop? Do you do any writing longhand? Um, I'm normally sat at a keyboard with a, with with a mechanical keyboard. I've got one of those um, Unicomp Buckling Spring uh, replicas of the IBM from the eighties, oh. clunky mechanical keyboard. <laughs> That's that's turned out to be my favourite. I mean, I've got about eight keyboards, but that that is that is the precious. It's the noisy, spring-loaded, bang, 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 gets that newsroom feel going. Um, I like to do it on a big screen because my eyesight is so bad. Um, sometimes I do stop and write longhand, but not very often it, because it, because it's relatively slow. I do all my notes on paper. Um, then I have to transcribe them to a searchable database to find them because I mean, you can't see this luckily, but I mean, this looks like a direct hit on a paper factory. <laughs> I'm just, so I've just finished one book and I'm going into the next, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a sort of keyboard and screen sort of person. I edit on an iPad uh, using um, Goodreader. That, that sounds like I'm saying the wrong thing. Now I'm using the right thing there, uh, mainly because it was, uh, it was the first app I, found that had e-ink years ago um and that's easy to do because it it really is like sitting down with a piece of paper i do find editing on the screen quite difficult Uh, there's too much going on um uh, especially if you're using word or something that that resembles word you've got all the notes down the columns you know that come back from the editor and all that and there's just too much going on on the screen so i actually prefer to work from something that's page sized uh, I make a lot of notes. I've got notebooks everywhere. I've got a waterproof notebook on the shower wall. Um, I've got a notebook with one of those illuminated pilot pens, um, you know, that they use in cockpits uh, at the side of the bed because if I wake up in the middle of the night or if I think of something while I'm drifting off, it's got to be written down. Yeah, so... Um, do, you have a, do you have any specific go-to, like... Um, when you're writing music you have to have on, drink that has to be at hand? Definitely not music. Uh, I find that very dis- distracting. And if it's got lyrics as well, that's just that finishes me off. Because um, uh, one of the things, one of the really weird things, and again, I just hope I just hope there's someone who's a, who's, who's a brain scientist who can work this one out for me one day. I think better with my eyes shut. If I'm stuck, I have to go and lie in a darkened room or... Or I put the older air, air, airline um, eye, eye mask thing on, you know, mm. try and shut out the light because anything I see, I respond very strongly to visual stimuli, and it just it just distracts me. Um, Disco music because I will start to see things 
ah, oh, God, that sounded mad, didn't it? It's the voices. I'm seeing things. It, it just it just stimulates the wrong part, part of my brain. Um, I know there are people who have to have music to write. I have to turn it off. I need white noise, if anything. Uh, I found, to be honest, I'm finding that a bit harder now as I get older. I mean, your sort of concentration fails eventually. There was a time when I can remember finishing a novel sat in this room with a dust sheet around the computer while a carpenter was 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 running a, a router through the door to put in the sort of uh, the fireproofing uh i don't know what the decibel level was but it was deafening and i forgot he was there uh. now i couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> yeah. 10 15 years ago i could so um mm-hmm. yeah so nothing threading that i don't i don't write in coffee shops uh <laughs> I don't wish to, yeah, I mean, I'm not somebody who wants to write in a shop window as part of a sort of uh, art installation. Um, <laughs> I don't like having people around me when I'm doing it. I just want to be on, on my own writing. Uh, so because it's about immersion and so that's the other thing. I need I need to limit the amount of time I spend on a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I throw myself at it 100%, lock all the doors, I don't see anyone, I just carry on writing like five or six weeks solid, that always ends up as far as i'm concerned being a better book than if i've got time because then i start overthinking it and I, I sort of drift in and out of characters too much and then it takes longer to get back into them so um going at things as a sort of rush and going into a state of perda and and not and not looking at anything else or seeing anything else is the only way i can do it i do drink a lot of tea and coffee though particularly tea um and that's about it really i mean i am sustained largely by tea <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me um one last question i know i thought that i because i always find this interesting i've i i don't do any writing myself but i've sort of been fascinated by the art of writing and i've read a lot of fiction and nonfiction in my time um i've read several books written by authors specifically about the art of writing and i always find it really interesting anytime i talk to a writer about their process because the, the answers are such a wild range. Um, it's fine that I, cause of course it has to fit the person who's doing it. You know, there isn't just a cookie cutter. Well, this is how you write a novel. Um, but one of the questions that I have is, um, I, I know you said you like to have the character sort of speak to you, sort of get into their head and they sort of tell you, um, what the story is. But when you're sitting down to begin a book, whether it's like city of Pearl or, the last of us, um, they're the best of us. I mean, the, do you have an idea like sort of storyboarded out in your head or sort of outlined where it is you want the story to go from A to Z? How does that process work for you? Uh, knowing that I will be diverted somewhere along the way. Um, I treat it like a train journey and then you walk into the station and you ask for a ticket to somewhere and you accept that once you bought that ticket, I mean, you, because you have to start moving uh, and you think, I think the book is probably going to end up there. So you think the train is going to this particular destination, but there are stops along the way and you are prepared for at the next stop or the stop after that, that the people you're following will get off and go off somewhere entirely different. But you've got to have an idea of, of, of where you're going simply to take that first step. Even if you end up then going totally off a, off a tangent. Um, I mean, it's one of the things that came out of Clarion. Uh, Sean Stewart was one of our tutors and, uh, at the time, I was I was thinking that I had to plan everything out on five by three cards, and lots of people do that. As as you, as you say, there there are many ways to do a book, as there are writers writing books. And he said, 
if you over plan it, I mean, this is just talking to me rather than giving people general rules because he actually spent a lot of time with people looking at how they, how they worked and their approach to story. And he said to me, if you know everything that's going to happen, you're going to be bored. He said, and that boredom will come across in your writing. He said, take your hands off the wheel. And I did. And that, it was, it was hard because I'm, I'm a spreadsheet and planning sort of person, but I just went with the characters and that was another door that opened. It, yeah, something else that I could do I didn't think wouldn't have thought of doing. But yeah, train train journeys is the only way I can describe it. I mean, I know people who work from individual images they've seen or something that's just coming into their head and they've got to e- explain where that picture comes from. And I've had a couple of those. Or some, um, I mean, titles are a big deal for me. Uh, I've got to know the title really before I start. I don't necessarily know the theme. Um, the theme emerges from the characters and what I think is the theme just gets buried and their theme comes out and then you start to see that that really was mulching under the surface. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure I could do a book if I didn't have an idea of the title mm-hmm. yeah, because, because that does fire you up. I mean, some, I just get random ideas for titles and think, I'll write a book around that. <laughs> 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 it's true, though. It's true. I mean, I've... Um, I've sort of made a bit of a shift over to thrillers as well because I'm you know, doing techno thrillers like um, the Ringer series. And I'm, I must admit uh, there are conventions in thrillers that I've ignored. Uh, a, friend, a friend of mine who's, um, who's a, a literary critic, shall we say, she said, the thing about, she said the thing about thrillers, she said, is they put the world back the way it should be. Um, by the end of the book, she said, the thing about science fiction is that the world changes. But I've done something entirely different. <laughs> I've actually had the, I've actually had the world change. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really good. I mean, I always say to people who, who want advice on writing, if someone tells you there's only one way to do it, ignore them, because there are many ways. I mean, Kipling knew, knew this. You know, nine and sixty ways of constructing tribal lays, and every single one of them is right, and that is true. It's it's the way you tell stuff. Uh, you you don't need fancy software uh, with with a load of jargon to learn to construct your story. Uh, you know, I mean, there are there are there are a few basic rules that a, a human being has got to be able to relate to what you've written. But there are so many ways of doing it. It's like you know, character arcs uh, don't have a character doesn't have to change. Um, I mean, that's my that's my view of it. And I was pleased to see an article in Script magazine fairly recently where someone challenged the whole character arc, you must change by the end thing, and said, no, that doesn't have to happen. And you don't have to have a three-act structure. Mm-hmm. And they cited all the examples of other cultures uh, you know, in, in Asia where it's closer to what I write, which is the rolling crisis type of story. It never ends. It's just one thing leads to the next because it's a chain of consequences and causality. And I suppose the only thing I say to people who want to write is don't feel hemmed in. Don't 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 let people tell you that you've got to think a certain way. Don't let people tell you that the only way to do it is through this path. Don't let people tell tell you've even got to be an avid reader. And that's the biggest lie that gets told. You've got to read all these worthy books, otherwise you can't write. You know, that's like saying you have to eat everything in that in that bakery before you can be a baker. Uh, there are other ways to do these things. There are other ways to get an idea of, of what you're producing. Um, I write to explore and earn money, obviously, but you know, the sort of secondary thing is if I can't explore, I don't want to write. Uh, other people write because they've got something they want to get out of them, but it's knowing what motivates you 
and actually using that because motivation is the hardest thing, I think. Yeah. Very good. Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm going to draw this to a close. I cannot, um, I said, no, I said this at the beginning. I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your day to, to come on and talk with me about all this stuff. And, um, I, I hope things are going well over there. I hope, um, how's, uh, you know, the weather and with COVID and with everything that we're dealing with. And, um, yeah, I, uh, I hope, uh, hope one day we can connect again. Absolutely. It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure talking to you, James. All right. Well, thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So that was the podcast with Karen Travis. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun making it. I uh, definitely look forward to doing that having her on again in the future. Um, and remember, don't forget to go check out Blackstar Woodcraft, sponsor for this podcast. Say hello to Scott for me. Get something that you will absolutely love. And if you could do me a favor with this podcast, if you like it, like, share, subscribe, all that stuff, tell a friend, whatever you have to do. Every little bit of it helps. And if you're listening to this on an Apple device, there's a spot up in the corner to leave a review. If you could do that for me, that would be incredible. Well, that's all I got for this time. I want to say I love all of you. Take care of each other, and we'll see you next time.